open to straighten out a messed up church. And that's about all I got to say about that. Now, uh, in 2 Corinthians, um, as I said last week, this is one of the most personal letters and one of the most autobiographical letters that Paul wrote. And the reason it's that way is that he lived with them for 15 months, 14 or 15 months. He didn't just go in for a month and set up a church and appoint leaders and take off. He lived with them for 14 or 15 months. So, I mean, the attachment he had to this church was strong and real. And uh, he really had a personal investment hoping that they would do well because obviously he'd make friends and he lived with somebody for that long. So this was very personal, more personal probably than any of the other letters I've uh, read of his or he wrote. Now, before he wrote 2 Corinthians and after he wrote 1 Corinthians, he decided he would go and just see how it went. And, you know, you like to be the optimist. He was thinking, well, you know, maybe they've started straightening out. So he goes there, and that was not the case. He still had a lot of opposition. There were still people rejecting Jesus. There were still people rejecting Paul. Uh, there were people calling his apostleship into question, uh, calling his uh, integrity into question. Uh, and you can tell it was happening because they were struggling. You ever notice when you struggle, you're a lot more difficult to live with? I mean, you might be a little more judgmental. of a, I mean, not me, but other people. But um, you might be a little more judgmental. You might be a little more snippy, um, things like that. There's so many things I could say, and I'm not going to because I'll get in trouble. But anyway, um, you can be a little hypersensitive and say some things you probably shouldn't. Well, the base of all this, I mean, the, one of the biggest problems they still had were they were mad that he had made plans to come and see him, and he told him what route he was going to take. And then some things happened in ministry along the way that he had to handle. So he says, hey, I can't come when I said I was going to come. I'll come at this time instead. And I'm not going to come the way I wanted to come. I'll come this other way. And so this is how you know they must have been really struggling. They said, well, then he's a liar and has no integrity and shouldn't be an apostle. Because he changed his plans. That was one of the biggest reasons, which is ridiculous. But I think what it really was was just a sign of how deeply they had fallen into a difficult situation because it was they were dark they were getting more and more dark by the day now he wrote this to defend himself first of all this book he was hoping to defend some of the allegations against him and he also wanted to open up about the struggles of ministry he felt like maybe if i share with him the fact that i know you're struggling i know you have pagans that are that are persecuting you you have some of the romans that are persecuting you some of the old legalistic jews that are persecuting you and he was thinking maybe if i share the fact that hey i i deal with that all the time Maybe they'll realize that they're not alone in their struggles. So you'll see him share more about himself in this book than probably any other book he wrote because he's saying, listen, I've been there, and yet God has got me through it, and he'll get you through it. That was, I think that's the reason, one of the main reasons he wrote that. Now, in today's message, um, Paul's going to teach using some of the most amazing imagery you're going to see in Scripture, just amazing imagery. And I don't even know if I'll be able to cover it completely. You guys might notice I'll preach and then go back three verses and start over the next week. It's because I find myself having trouble finishing because there's so much in here to, uh, to cover, so I have to rush through the end, and I have to go back and cover it. Today might be one of those cases because he has such amazing, amazing imagery, which is why I titled this The Fragrance of Grace. That will make sense to you, okay? I'm not going to explain all that right now, but that will make sense to you. Okay, let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 14. We're going to go back just the last three verses of chapter 2. It says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and manifests through us the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death, to the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is 
sufficient for these things. For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, Paul's imagery begins here really in verses 14 through 17 is where you really start to see a lot of the imagery that he's going to use throughout chapter 3. Um, the imagery here is a picture of a Roman triumphal procession. That's why he brought that up. Remember, these people were very familiar with Rome. They were in captivity to Rome, basically. That was the most powerful nation at that time. And so he was trying to bring to mind this ro- thing called a Roman triumphal procession. And that would always happen after a battle. And what they would do, remember, the Romans were very braggy-type people. They were proud. So when generals would win a big victory, they would come into Rome, and they would take all their captives, all their POWs, and line them up, and they would march them through the streets, especially the kings that they had captured, and just to kind of mock them and show that they were in control over them, just to show off. Hey, we won. Here's our POWs. We were victorious. That was just one of the things they did. They wanted to shame them and, at the same time, kind of brag on their victory in front of a big crowd. Now, in these uh, processionals, they would also burn really good-smelling, fragrant incense, okay? And it was kind of a, an offering, if you will, or a celebratory move to celebrate their victory. And it was an unmistakable fragrance. When you smelled that, that really, uh, it was an, a, you know, a, a good fragrance. People like to smell it. It smelled good. When you'd smell that, you'd know that Rome had won another victory. They were burning incense. They were marching their captives through. They had uh, won another victory. And their soldiers were marching through proud, leading, pushing these, these POWs. And that was just the way they did things. So likewise, Paul was using that imagery because through Christ, God has and will defeat every enemy he has. He has defeated them, he is defeating them, and he will finish defeating every enemy in this world before our time ends here, right? And so, figuratively, Paul was saying that he and the apostles felt like those soldiers marching in that post-battle processional, right? All the victories that they had had in Christ against all odds. Remember, they were having victories with just a few men taking on large areas themselves, taking on large churches, taking on, uh, you know, pagans, and they were being victorious through God. And he, he was basically saying, you know those Roman processionals, how they march in all proud of their leader and how the generals just showed that they were dominant and the POWs are there and behind them are all the victorious soldiers. He said, we actually feel like we're winning. We feel like God is giving us the victory, and every time we march into town, we march in from a stance of positive victory. We feel like we have defeated the enemy, and we will continue to defeat the enemy. This is all about having the right mindset, having that positive mindset, because it's easy as believers sometimes to look at everything that's wrong. Has anybody here noticed that the enemy always points out bad things to you more than good things? Anybody ever notice that? He always gives you reasons that you think you have the right to complain. He gives you a lot of reasons to complain. But there are a myriad of reasons for you to praise him. And that never gets pointed out to you. Okay? This was Paul having that positive mindset. Right? And the incense that Paul and the apostles were burning in this triumphal uh, Christian you know, procession wasn't the kind that you light. They did have an incense, but the incense was their actions, the way they were sharing the words of grace and loving people, that was the fragrant incense that they were sharing. Because Paul, Paul and, the, and the faithful brought this fresh message of grace to people who have been under legalism. How many people were raised in a legalistic church? Raise your hand if you were raised in a legalistic church. Wow. Well, I was. Okay. <laughs> and I say there's some of you, but raise your hand. I know you. But 
Um, it feels, when I say you're in bondage, you don't understand that unless you're raised in that kind of church. It's bondage. I mean, telling you what to wear, how long your hair can be, what kind of music to listen to, telling you, I mean, basically dictating everything to your life, judging you. Every time you walk in the door, you feel like you're getting the up and down. You know what the up and down is, right? Where they go, that's the up and down. You feel like you get that every time you walk in. If you were raised in a legalistic church, you can really appreciate uh, what he's talking about here. But they were bringing this fresh new message of grace that did not depend on legalism and it didn't depend on all, these, these, all the pageantry of the pagans. It didn't depend on any of that. So figuratively, those who didn't know Jesus, they were seen as having the smell of death all around them. Because remember, he is likening this to the battlefield, in essence, right? They had the smell of death all around them. Have you ever been in a room or in an area where something has died and has been there for a while? Anybody ever been around that? You know that smell of death? I mean, it only takes like a day to set in. You can walk into a room and go, oh, you know what I mean? Well, I think about that as I read this, because people figuratively who have not believed are still doomed. Right. And what the, the what the world presents them with is just the fragrance of death all around them, disbelief all around them. It's really, really a great picture here. But it's a real sickening odor when you smell the smell of death. What the Apostle Paul told us in his letter to the Romans is that sin leads to death. OK, look at Romans six twenty three. It says for the wages of sin is is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the sin and the disobedience of the world brought this stench that he's, he's trying to bring to their mind, the stench of death to their mind. And spiritually speaking, this stench of sin and disobedience was so bad that it reached the nostrils of God, which is why God sent his only begotten son to remove that stench that sin brought, and he removed it by offering his life to all who would trust him as their personal savior. This is how he was cleaning up that stench of death. Now, there's nothing as refreshing as when you find the source and you get it out of your house. You know what I mean? Has anybody ever had something die in their house and it takes forever to find it? Anybody have that? You're like going, no. I'm not talking about people, just so you know. <laughs> I didn't have to hide any bodies in my house, FYI. But have you ever had, like, a critter die? Like, I'll never forget. I shouldn't even, this isn't in my outline. I shouldn't even tell you this, but I'm going to. Um, there was a coon in the middle of the day, a raccoon. And if you see one in the middle of the day, they're sick. They're nocturnal. They shouldn't be around in the middle of the day. Don't pet them because <laughs> they are not friendly. Anyway, um, so my daughter comes in and goes, I can't even go outside and do anything. I can't go out and play. This coon's out there hissing and stuff. If I lived in town at the time, I couldn't take my gun out and shoot it. So I had this brilliant idea. I would take my bow. Oh, don't judge. Hold up. <laughs> so I went out there with my bow, and I smoked that coon. <laughs> and I'm feeling proud of myself, but it, my arrow stayed in it, which, by the way, those are like 14 bucks with, field, with, you know, with everything. So I'm like, mm, I was hating this thing more and more every second. And I go out there to grab it, and it takes off moving with an arrow right through the middle of it. I I'm, listen, I'm not going to chase a coon with an arrow through it. I'm sorry. There's, there's some things I just don't do. I thought, it'll die. I'll track it. So I went to track it later, and it's not like tracking a deer. I could not track it. But two days later, I could track it. Because it was July when this happened. And I walked out on my deck, and I went, oh, it's dead somewhere close. 
it made its way under my deck. Just a little F, little information for you. I am the most claustrophobic human being alive. I am not crawling under there, right? Second, I am terrified of spiders, and that is their domain. <laughs> not going under there. So I throw something back there to grab it, and as I pull it out, I go, here it is, and I jerk it out, and like maggots flew off and hit my daughter, and she's going, ah, and running and screaming. <laughs> but I just thought I'd throw the rest of that in there so you can embarrass her with that later. That was Brie, by the way. But anyway, that reminds me of the stench of death. I followed the stench of death to find the source. Well, the source of the stench of death that Paul is talking about is the sin and disobedience in this world. And the reason it has the stench of death is if you stay with that disobedience, if you stay with that unbelief that the world pushes, it can only lead to death. And the word death in Hebrew and in Greek has the, the, the implication of being separate from something, right? And the more you refuse to believe, the more separate from God you are. The more disobedient you are, the more separate uh, from God you are. And it changes your life when you're a believer who's disobedient. And the stench in your life is that you are pulling away from God. And you're not enjoying the freedoms you once enjoyed in him. And for unbelievers, the stench is that your hope is only in this world. And when it ends, you have eternity to face. So I love this imagery because what he was saying is when we bring the message of grace to a world that's dying, to a world that's surrounded by the stench of death, when we bring in this refreshing message that says, listen, it's not about legalism. It's not about what you can do. It's not about what you can offer. It's not about how righteous you are or what you wear. It's not about the music you listen to. It's about faith. And if you will believe in what the Son of God did on that cross at Calvary, he will give you life and remove that stench of death that's all around you. Because now you not only are alive in Christ, you are promised to live eternally with Christ. This world and the stench of it can't get on you. And that was the picture he was trying to paint here, which I think is absolutely amazing. Now let me move on because I could preach on that forever. Um, 2 Corinthians 3, we're going to move into this next chapter. Because if you notice, he said at the end of verses 14 through 17, he said, we're not like these other people who are just peddling a message. There were people back then who were just preaching for money. And even though us pastors make the big bucks, no, I'm just kidding, y'all know better than that, right? But there were people who were traveling around, basically would tell you anything you wanted to hear if you pay them. And he's saying, hey, we're not like them. We're not coming in here with our own personal agendas. We're coming in here with a passion for ministry. We're coming in here with a passion for life. We are coming in here to deliver you from the stench of death all around you and bring the beautiful fragrance of grace into your life. That's why we're here. Then we move on to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. He says, we, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? Okay, so evidently somebody was accusing the Apostle Paul of bragging on his accomplishments or commending himself on his accomplishments. And anyone that's read any of Paul's writings understands that that was a humble man. He always gave glory to God for everything that happened in his life. It was just ridiculous for someone to say that Paul was commending himself or bragging on himself. That was just ridiculous. But again, these are miserable people who are trying to spread the, mis the misery. Now, Paul could have gotten an argument. And he could have said, show me. I will bring copies of all the letters I've written. Show me one time 
where I took credit. He could have got in that debate, but he understood something. You can't lose an argument you don't get in, right? So instead, he looks at this as an opportunity to show his critics just how powerful God actually is. And here's where Paul uses some of that great imagery I mentioned earlier. It gets even better than what we read earlier. See, Paul knew his readers were very familiar with the written law of Moses. Because even the ones who were believers, a lot of them were converts from Judaism, and they had remembered uh, a lot of their legalistic background. Because in, in the Jewish faith, it's all about who can keep the most of the law. There's a very self-righteous element to that. Okay, And the Jews prided themselves in knowing the law by heart. They taught it to their children from little up. I mean, they could recite passages. They knew all about the law. They could tell you anything you needed to know about the law, and they loved the fact that they were entrusted with the law. But here's the thing. Paul knew that no one was ever justified by keeping the law. It just never happened. Okay, it never happened because no one has ever perfectly kept the law, and no one ever will other than Jesus. He's the only one. There was never anyone who was able to keep the law. When you meet people who are involved in religions who are back in the Old Testament, they are never able to keep all the law, so they make convenient rules that allow them to circumvent that, right? The law was not designed for imperfect beings to keep. There was a purpose for that, and we'll get to it here in a minute. But Galatians 3.11, listen to what Paul said to the Galatians. Now that what? Say that louder. Now that no one is justified by law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. That is the core of the ministry right there. The righteous man shall live by faith. So Paul brilliantly used their knowledge of the written law against him. And I love how he asked them, listen, do you think I, do you think I need your affirmation? Do you think I need or want your affirmation? Is that what you think I'm here for? The only reason I would come in here bragging is if I felt like I needed to impress you, is if I felt like I needed affirmation or approval from you. I don't need it. That's what he was saying. I don't need it. He's saying basically in our terms, he's saying, do you think I'm here like some kid asking for a letter of recommendation for college? Is that what you think I'm doing? You think I'm coming here bragging up myself, hoping that you'll write me a recommendation so I can get the job? That is not why I'm here. And anyone who's read Paul's writings knows the only one he was worried about pleasing was God. I mean, the man was beaten almost to death at least three times. He was imprisoned over and over and over again. He was maligned and talked about and had rocks thrown at him. I mean, this guy had proven beyond all the apostles that he was willing to take the consequences of being faithful no matter what. So the, this accusation was just absolutely ridiculous. And in Paul's mind, he was saying the proof of the success of our ministry doesn't have to be bragged about. I don't have to tell you about it. You want to know that our ministry is being successful, that God is moving through us? Look around you at all the lives that have been changed by him. All right? There is our evidence. I don't need any letters from you. My letters are walking around. You want to know what's, what we've accomplished? This man used to be a sorcerer. Now he's a believer. This woman was a prostitute. Now she's a believer. This tax collector used to cheat you. Now he's singing to you and praying with you. If that's not evidence of the success of our ministry, I don't know what is. And if you refuse to believe that, I can't help you. That's what Paul was basically saying. Here's the thing. When God gets a hold of someone, that person should begin to change. And when they do, people will take notice. Now, sometimes it's not positive. Okay, I'm just going to be honest. When I first got saved, I had people found out I was going to church on Wednesday and Sunday. 
evidently that's not a thing everywhere because they started spreading that I was in a cult. I literally had one, you know the friend that has no filter? Anybody have that friend or family? Okay, I am that friend, it seems. But I had someone come up to me, and they go, hey, you know what everybody's saying about you? And I'm like, well, evidently, you're dying to tell me. What is it? They're saying that you're in some wacko cult that goes to church in the middle of the week. Is that true? I said, they're not a wacko cult, but yeah, I do go to church in the middle of the week. They're like, that's nuts. And they walked away. I'm like, you made a trip up here to tell me that? You know, that, that's what you made your trip up here for? Listen, God, when he starts getting, when he gets a hold of somebody and the Holy Spirit starts rearranging things, people will take notice. Jesus explained how God places the Holy Spirit in literally everyone who believes in John 14. This is Jesus. He said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Notice it's capitalized, helper. That he, notice that's capitalized, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit, capital S. What are we talking about here? The Holy Spirit, whenever it's capitalized, it's a sign of deity. It's the Holy Spirit. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world, what? Cannot receive. You can't have the Holy Spirit if you haven't believed. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Okay, so this was Jesus saying, I am going to place the Holy Spirit in every one of you. Right? And Jesus spoke of the soon coming and eternal ministry of the Holy Spirit in a little more detail in John 16. You look at verse 5. He said, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked uh, ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, capital H, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you, right? Verse 8, and he, when he comes, uh, just side note, the Holy Spirit is not an it. That drives me insane. I think the King James Bible actually calls it an it, calls him an it. <laughs> See that? I already got sucked in, right? The Holy Spirit is a he. It is a part of the triune God, okay? Just want to throw that in there. Uh, so it says, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So understand this about the Holy Spirit. I feel like the Holy Spirit gets a bum rap, okay? Because we pray in Jesus' name, and we talk about God the Father and the glory and the majesty of heaven, but God is made up of three co-equal and co-eternal parts that make up what we, what we call the Godhead, all right? God is made up. When you read in the Old Testament, it says, in the beginning, uh, God made the heavens and the earth. The word God there in Hebrew is Elohim. It's plural. It means many in one. So even though the very first sentence in the Bible, he is introducing the Trinity is what we call it the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are all co-equal. They are all co-eternal, right? And when you pray, a lot of times when I'm praying for wisdom, or before I read, I have a habit of doing this, before I read, I always say, Holy Spirit, reveal yourself to me. Speak to me. Show me what you need me to apply today. Show me what you need me to teach. Show me where I need correction. Reveal yourself to me, because that's his job. And it's okay to pray to the Holy Spirit because he's just as powerful and eternal as God. Okay, that's another sermon. I better move on. Now, the Holy Spirit has a, 
a multifaceted role, okay? In John 16, uh, John describes all three of his roles. So what we just read was a description of all three of his roles. Okay, first, he convicts believers when we sin. He makes us aware of sin. Okay, I don't want you to get confused about conviction. Okay, conviction is not forcing a person to believe something. The Holy Spirit will never force you to believe anything. All right, that's not how God works. God wants it to be a choice. Conviction simply means demonstrating that something is true. That's what conviction literally means. When someone is convicted of a crime, it's been proven that they committed it. You've been proven that it's true that they are guilty of that offense. So they are convicted because the truth is they committed that offense. That's exactly what conviction is. It's when the Holy Spirit says, here's what God says and here's what you're doing. This is truth. This is you. His job is to convict us when we sin. And if you've been a Christian longer than one hour, you've probably felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit on something. How many people have ever had that moment where you go, I am going to tell them? And you go in and you go, I'm, and you lay into them and you walk out of there going, here, I told him with the Barney Fife move, you know? And then you go home and the Holy Spirit starts moving in you. Saying, really? Really? He deserved that, did he? Hmm. What do you deserve? Starts moving on you. And I don't know if you've ever had to make that phone call. That phone call where all your pride has to slither under the door, and you have to call them and say, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have been a jerk. That's not who Christ is. That's not what we're doing here. I'm sorry. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It convicts us. It shows us what's true and how we line up with what's true. So if someone is a believer, we won't be able to sin without consequences. That's because the Holy Spirit is in us. Now, the second thing that, uh, the second role he, he has is he draws people closer to God by teaching them to love God and obey his commandments. Okay, that's his second role. It's the Holy Spirit that encourages us to worship, read, and pray. Have you ever felt in your heart when you're hearing a song that speaks to you? Have you ever felt a song? Raise your hand if you felt a song. I mean, it's moved in you. And next thing you know, you have your hands up or your hands out. I remember saying to myself, being raised so conservative, I remember saying to myself, I'm never doing that. I'm not raising my hand so everybody in the building can look at me. Until the first time the Holy Spirit said, it's time to worship, kids. And not every time, but there are times when those hands hit the air before I realize they've left my side. Because the Holy Spirit is saying, if you feel me, rejoice in me. You know what I mean? That's part of his job, right? He encouraged you to read the word of God. Have you ever felt convicted that you're not reading and every, all you can think about is I should read? You ever had that? You might even start trying to make excuses for why you're not reading. And the Holy Spirit's going, not buying it, right? It's the Holy Spirit that, that drives us to read and to study. Have you ever needed to pray about something but you don't really want to? Now, that sounds terrible, but I'll, I'll be the first one to admit it. When I'm mad at someone, I know the Bible says pray for them. That's really hard, isn't it? It's really, really hard. And I can feel the Holy Spirit in me sometimes saying, you need to pray. That person is all up in your head, and you need to pray for them. I'm like, I am not praying for them. And then things just start going wrong. You know what I mean? The gates of mercy and comfort are slammed in my face. Because the Holy Spirit's saying, you have drifted into a zone where all you're thinking about is you and yours. 
you're not thinking about the joy you should be displaying to other people. And it says you need to read. So it's the Holy Spirit who draws us closer to God and pulls us into a closer relationship with God by drawing us to his word and drawing us to worship. Now, the third and last thing I'll mention is he guides us through God's word and prayer so that we can find God's path for our lives. He makes things make sense to us. Have you ever read something 50 times and you have nothing big comes out of it to you? Then right when you need it, you open up your Bible, read that thing that you've read a zillion times, and all of a sudden, it clicks. Has that ever happened to anybody? And you're like, how have I read this book this many times and not known that? Or someone will come up and say, well, the Bible says this, and you're going, yeah, does it? <laughs> and you go look, and you go, how did I not see that? Right? When the Holy Spirit thinks it's time for you to grasp that section of Scripture, He will reveal it to you. He will reveal it to you. The Holy Spirit, has a j His job is to reveal that to you. When you are, God has a purpose for all of us. I say this all the time. We're born with a purpose, on purpose, for a purpose. And the Holy Spirit's trying to guide you down the path of that purpose. And when you start to drift off of it, nobody has to come up to you with a clipboard and say, uh, sir, I'm sorry, but you violated rule number. That, nobody has to do that. Because the Holy Spirit's going, what are you doing, Chris? What are you doing? That uncertainty you feel? That's me saying you're getting off the path. This isn't a good path. This is going to cause you all kinds of trouble. Get back. Anybody ever been there? Well, I've been there more than I care to admit. Right? But that's the Holy Spirit's job. Now, then he kind of transitions to the use uh, of imagery by comparing law and the Holy Spirit. This is really kind of brilliant. I, I really love how he did this. 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3 says, You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are uh, a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So the Old Testament law was originally written on stone tablets. You guys all know that, right? <laughs> I keep thinking of that movie at Mills. You know, he comes down, he says, there's 15 commandments, and he drops one, and it goes, 10 commandments, there's 10 commandments. <laughs> That's so carnal, sorry. Anyway, but originally, it was written on stone. God gave it just to Moses. But since Moses brought the law, it's been copied time and time and time again over generation and generation, and it's been copied on parchment with ink and paper and parchment, okay? And here's the problem. All of that, the tablets, the paper, the parchment, the ink, all of it is temporary. It will not last. That's why they keep having to copy it over and over and over. Because if they don't, it won't be around for people to read, Right? It is only temporary. The other problem is everything written in there, everything written in there demands perfection. The people who say, I want to keep the law, well, I hope you're perfect because it demands perfection. If you're going to be justified by the law, you have to keep every period, every cross T, every point, every sub point. You have to be able to keep all of it without any fail or it, don't, it won't work. Right. In the New Testament, see, God has inspired men to record his words. That's still happening on paper, paper and parchment. But he's also recorded his word in a different way. When we become believers and we start reading and we start praying and start getting closer to God, he starts recording what he wants us to know on our hearts. He starts writing his laws in our hearts. He starts speaking to us individually from our hearts, from our psyche, from our mind. And the law that it's called the law of liberty that comes after grace 
has no expectation of perfection. Imagine how liberating that would be after your whole life, you're like, I forgot this sacrifice, now I'm doomed. Oh, I forgot this offering, now I'm doomed. I forgot this incense, now I'm doomed. Oh, wait, this is a celebration of this, I gotta make sure I do this. Oh, wait, I gotta fast because of this, I gotta take leaven out of my house. Imagine how hard that would be. And then here comes Jesus, the Son of God, performing miracles, walking on water, healing the sick, raising the dead. And he says, listen, if you believe in me, I know you're not perfect. See, I see you when no one else does. I see what you say when no one else is listening. I see how you act when you think no one is watching. I see absolutely everything. I see it all. And I'm here to tell you, I love you despite that. Despite knowing all the skeletons in your closet, and some of us have a graveyard, right? Despite that, despite knowing where the bodies are buried, not literally, don't call the cops, he still loves you, and he offers you redemption despite your depravity, despite the fact that you cannot be perfect, despite the fact that you're going to make mistakes, he offers you eternal life. And he's saying, listen, I will speak to you from here. You know, someone that can never read the word of God can still communicate with God? Trust me, if he spoke to Moses in the desert through a burning bush, he'll find a way to talk to you, right? And this had to be the most liberating thing they had ever heard. Oh my gosh, he knows I'm imperfect and he loves me anyway. What a great deal. That's what he's talking about when he says he'll write it on your hearts, right? The law of liberty is about being confident in God and the Holy Spirit who's inside of us. The law of liberty isn't about being confident in yourself. That's what the law of, of Moses was about. Oh, I keep this many and you keep that many. I'm better than you. You know what? Listen, the law of liberty isn't about that. It's about grace. It's about faith. It's not even about you. The law of liberty or the new covenant is what made Paul and the apostles so confident. It's what made them, it was what made them bold enough to go out and face the world. They knew they were going to make mistakes. They knew that they would get mad. They knew that they would do things they shouldn't. They knew that they would make wrong decisions. But they also knew how powerful the grace of God was. And they thought, if God was willing to die for us knowing what a screw-up I am, then I'll go ahead and trust him to go from town to town and minister through me despite the flaws I have. That's what gave them their confidence. That's why he said in verses 4 through 6, such, con such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, what? Kills, but the Spirit gives life. There's that comparison again. They didn't need the approval of people or require a letter of recommendation, as I said earlier. They were confident that it was God who empowered them to succeed, not man. See, the Jews kept, you know, thinking that you had to keep the law, even though that's completely impossible. They thought the law is what made you righteous. They were wrong. That's completely impossible. Only by trusting in God's righteousness can anything happen. Can you be successful? Can you be saved? That's the only way we can have success is through trusting in him. So this new covenant says, listen, I know you're sick of trying to be perfect, so let me make you a deal. Let me make you a deal. You don't have to be perfect. I just want you to believe in the one who is. You don't have to be flawless. I just want you to trust in the one who was. Right? You don't have to make every sacrifice. I just want you to believe in the one sacrifice that matters. 
the only begotten Son. That's all I ask. And I think that is so powerful because the New Covenant teaches a relationship based on love, not legalism. A relationship based on life, not death. And Paul's going to expound on that. We'll keep moving on. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. I may not get done, just so you know. All right. Uh, It says, The old way with laws uh, etched in stone led to death, though it began with such glory that people of Israel could not uh, bear to look on Moses' face, for his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way, the new covenant, rather, uh, now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the old way which brings condemnation, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way which makes us right with God? Now, make no mistake, I can't stand it when people say, well, the law was no good. God wrote that, okay? The law was good. The law is good. The law is perfect. The law did exactly what the law was supposed to do, and what the law was supposed to do was not redeem you. It was never intended to redeem you. The purpose of the law was to show mankind how imperfect we are. Here's what the law is for. Here's the standard. Here's you. Way the heck down here. That's what the law was designed for. So that when any reasonable person, man or woman, reads that, they would read it and say, I'm not good enough. That's what the law was for. To show you you're not good enough apart from the Messiah. That's the whole role of the law. Right? And Paul reminded them that the law was good. Right? By bringing up Moses. The law was so holy that when Moses was up there receiving it from God, the mountain was covered in smoke. Holy smoke. (laughs) Sorry, bad joke. Anyway, and and Moses didn't even get to see God's face. The only way you can see God's face in this life is to see Jesus, right? But God allowed him to see his hindquarters. What does that mean? I don't know. I'll ask him when I get there. He just got to see a part of him. But it was so glorifying that when Moses came down with the tablets, the glory, the Shekinah glory of God was emanating off of him. He was glowing. And people couldn't even look upon him because the glory was just too much. They couldn't even look upon him. And that was from receiving the law. The law was good. It just demanded perfection. And no man is capable of perfection, so no one could be justified for it. So... Since the law couldn't bring eternal life, all it could bring is death. It could just point out the fact that you're dying. Paul said, I was alive without the law once. The law came, sin revived, and I died. Meaning, I was alive till I found out I was in sin. And when I found out I was in sin and I became accountable, I died spiritually. That's what he was saying. The law points out that you are dying apart from God. But Paul also mentioned the silver lining, and that is that there's something better, and that something better has already come. And then he said, if the law of Moses, which was designed to show us how depraved we are, if if the law of Moses was glorious, how much more glorious is the message of salvation by faith through grace, or by grace through faith? How how much more glorious is that? If, If Israel couldn't look upon Moses because he had been in the presence of God, you have God in you. How much more glorious is the message that you have? Please share it. That's what he was saying. Please share it. People couldn't even look on Moses, and he didn't get half the personal relationship that you have. You have a personal relationship with God himself. Your prayers go to the throne of Almighty God. He speaks to you through the Holy Spirit. So if the Moses coming off the mountain with tablets 
was glorious, how much more glorious is the relationship that Christ offers now? I just think that's awesome. See how much time I got here. I'm going to try to sneak in another one, should I? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, one more. Okay, so in verses 10 through 16, Paul proclaims that the law of liberty is way better. So starting in verse 10, he says, In fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way, which has been replaced, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new, which remains forever? So he's saying the law will do away what it was written on tablets or paper. It's going to go away. This doesn't go away, right? Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face so people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened, and this day, whatever the old covenant is being, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today, when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil, and they do not understand. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So when Jesus died on the cross, there were several signs and wonders. And I'm going to have to stop with this. There were several signs and wonders, right? And those signs and wonders were to proclaim the identity of the one who just died. There was darkness upon the earth for a span of time, right? The mountains rumbled and shook, right? There were saints, believers, who were resurrected when he died. People saw them walking around, right? And here's the big one. It says that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, as if something reached down and grabbed the veil and tore it open. See, the veil of the temple was the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And the only person that could go past the veil of the temple was the high priest. Right? And if his heart wasn't right when he went past the veil of the temple, he would die immediately. Right? Who'd be applying for that job? <laughs> right? I would want to try to walk across that veil after the Steelers lost, because I know where my heart would be. But I'm just saying... There are times when we forget there was a time when we weren't able to be close to God. That's what that veil was. They would even tie a, uh, a rope around the priest's ankle with a bell. And if they didn't hear the bell jingling when he was in there, they just assumed he wasn't right and died, and they'd drag him out. <laughs> Imagine how that felt. Yeah, go ahead and tie that on there. You know what I mean? So that used to separate God from the common man. But that was never God's full plan. He wanted us to have direct revelation. So what happens? Jesus came, died, and rose again, and when he died, God reached down and said, oh yeah, and this veil that only the high priest could cross, I'm going to tear that, because now you have access to God. Everyone who believes has direct access to the holy of holies, and those who don't believe still have the veil because they are choosing to be separate from God. They're not accepting the sacrifice that happens in the holy of holies, so they choose to be separate from God. They still are going to be blind to it. But those who will trust Christ, there is no veil, there is no wall, there is no separation. You can be with God wherever God is. And while you're with God and in this glorious position that is so glorious that that same message made, made Moses glow, you have an even better message. Please share it. Let me finish with this. This is what Jesus said. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father who's in heaven, Right? I'm going to go ahead and finish. Okay, Paul, <laughs> Paul ended this section, just a little bit, trust me here. He ended this section with just a statement about faith, over, uh, faith and freedom over legalism. So look at verse 17. For the Lord is the Spirit, 
for the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect on the glory of the Lord, and the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we change into His glorious image. So the law and all its ordinances only enslave people, but grace sets people free because it's no longer about us, it's about Him. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm